If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 2. We've been cruising through the book of Acts. We just started. We're in our fourth week through this series. Felt like it would be helpful for us as a church. Um, And I think today's going to be maybe an interesting passage, but I hope it's encouraging. I hope it gives you a, uh, well, a hope for the future and what God is building. And while you're turning to Acts 2, I've got a confession to make straight up before we even get started. I have found out that this is not normal, so I felt like it was important to say that I absolutely love black licorice. Anyone in here like black licorice or am I alone still? I love it. I love black licorice. I could eat it all day long. Uh, the Trader Joe's bags, I could drain one of those in about 20 minutes. I hate white colored sauces though. I can't do it. If it's white and it's on my food, I can't eat it. I dislike it almost as much as I dislike basketball. There I said it publicly. I do not enjoy basketball. I also hate puns. If you tell me a pun joke, I won't even groan. I won't dignify it with my attention span. I love airport layovers though. The longer the better. I don't know why. The the smell of a skunk does not bother me. I kind of like it. I'm going to be honest with you. Kind of like it. I love cold showers. That's mostly what I take. I love old coffee. If it sits in the car for a few days, that's my favorite kind of coffee. Right before the mold grows on top, that's when it's at its peak, I think. Um, But I would rather slam my hand in a car door than play a board game. I can't do it. I'm also a morning person, and I'm one of those kinds of morning people, right? A little bit of a hard charger in the morning. I'm an extrovert sometimes. I'm an introvert all of the time, though, if you know what I mean, all you introverts. Uh, my family lineage has a lot of German in it, a lot of Scottish in it, and I've heard that there are a few, not one or two, but a few horse thieves in my, in my lineage. I don't know what that means. I stole some gum whenever I was like in middle school, never even really been around a lot of horses. See, some of these are just quirks. None of this is serious, right? All these things that are true about me. But I also have views on politics. I have views on economics and theology. I have views on sexuality and guns and culture and theology that's going to be different than you maybe. Maybe. Definitely more weighty, much more volatile than the things I just named out. I mean... Do you see how different you are than me just in the small amount of time I just kind of rattled some things off? How different we are? In a room this size, you are so different than the person next to you. There's very little you have in common with them when you think about it. Even if you're married to them, no one in this building is very similar. We're much more different than we are the same when you really get down to the granularity of what makes us up, what we like, what we don't like. And yet God saw fit and his wisdom and his creativity to pull all kinds of different people together. All these different distinctions and nuances, some serious, some not serious. He pulls us all together to make one unified church. You see, his plan was never to put us all in a blender and blend us together into the same shape or into the same form, but for you and me to maintain our distinctions for his glory. In fact, it is what glorifies him that you and I can be next to each other with all of our various weirdness and our distinctions and our culture and our addictions and our backgrounds and worship God together. The fact that you and I can do that when we have different political views and different personalities shows that Jesus alone is enough to hold weirdos together, enough to hold people of different Enneagram numbers together or different political views together, rebels together. And today is one of my favorite passages Because we get to the place where God 
births his church and he does it in diversity. This is how he has decided to do it. And he's actually going to finish his church just like he starts it in diversity, as we're going to see, from people of all different walks of life. Differences that are serious, some that are quirky, right? And the big question we're going to have before us and what I would love for us to carry through the short amount of time I have with you is how much diversity are you willing to handle? How much diversity are you willing to deal with? And why does it frighten you? And and you might even be thinking, but Luke, it doesn't frighten me. I long for diversity. I want all different kinds of people around me, whether it's their, their skin color or their culture or their language or where they're from. I want it. Right? We're going to find out that we're actually probably a little bit more frightened of it than we think. So let's jump in. We're going to, this is a longer passage today. As we go through Acts, not all of the passages are long. Next week's is much, much, much shorter. But today we're going to maybe slow walk through this because I don't want to, to miss some of the bigger pieces. So we're in chapter 2, and we're going to just start in the very first verse. And then I'll pause from moment to moment. But this is going to be the word of the Lord for us. And you are going to see a very clear and compelling picture of Christ in something like this. Luke, the author, says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear, or we each, let me say it again, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Okay, just very quickly, Pentecost is a festival. It's an agricultural festival, but it's a historical one as well. It's maybe part what you call a traditional festival for them. It was a feast. It was 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. And this was a time where Jews would come from all over the world, um, from the far reaches really, to celebrate God together. Now this is interesting because they only had one thing in common and it was the fact that they were Jewish. But they would be coming from all different parts and carrying with them the culture that they grew up in, the culture that they were a part of. They would be dressed differently, eating different foods They would be having different conversations about different kinds of politics. It would be like the Olympics today, right? We're about to have the Olympics again. You're going to have the one thing that holds everybody together in commonality is the sport that they're in. But they're coming in from different parts of the world. Some from the Mediterranean, some from South America, some from America. They're going to be carrying their own cultures, their own languages, their own traditions, how they celebrate, how they mourn loss, all of that. 
is going to be different, except they're all athletes. Or Comic-Con, where nerds from all over the world come dressed like their favorite Marvel character that no one even knows about. I'm just playing, right? I love Marvel just like you do. Or the Super Bowl, where the one commonality is the fact that everyone's wealthy and they can spend $7,000 on a ticket and then walk in and barely watch a game, right? But people are coming in from all over the country, carrying with them their own language, their own dialects, their own stories, their own politics. That is what we have in this moment right here. And then suddenly, right in the middle of everyone telling stories and reading the Old Testament and sharing meals, suddenly something like a wind came getting everyone's attention. Something like fire just hovered above people, overwhelming the church of 120, and they began speaking languages that they did not take in high school. This is a miracle. This is a miracle that we're watching right here. And with these various languages, they declared the mighty works of God. What would that be? It'd be the gospel. The mighty works of God to rescue a broken, cracked, and needy cosmos, redeeming everything that was broken by his passion for his glory at his cost as he comes to live with us, die, and then live again, to collect a people who would be diverse. This beautiful, mighty work of God, the person that is Jesus. But why languages? He's got this awesome opportunity, this platform where the far reaches of the known world come together. Why languages? Why is that the thing that he chooses? God and all of his creativity to display. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were in Acts 1.8, Jesus said that you and I would be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very edges of the earth with his various languages and cultures and diversity. It begins here, now, in this moment where the gospel is flowing outward to the very crust in the edges of creation. But it's happening when the whole world has come to them in Jerusalem. This is the moment that the church age is born. This is when it happens. This thing that we get to celebrate, this is when it started. On the plot line of God's narrative, the story of God, this is not an ordinary day. It's not a normal day at all. Some myself included, consider Pentecost to be a sort of reverse Tower of Babel, okay? If you've not heard this, I mean, if you, if you, maybe you don't even know what the Tower of Babel is, you can find it in Genesis 11. It's where mankind had one common language and one goal. The goal was to displace God's glory and install their own glory. So they start building a tower, the Bible says, into the heavens. And then God, as a judgment, would come down and do what? Confuse their language, No longer can they cooperate, collaborate to build their own glory instead of God's. And so with different languages and the inability to communicate back and forth, they're spread throughout all of creation. And after that moment, if you keep reading the Old Testament, God would choose one ethno-linguistic group to be his chosen people, be the Jewish people. One group, one tongue, one language, be the Jews. And here we have Pentecost where everything changes where now language barriers are supernaturally put down. Everything is reversed. People would actually come closer with their various languages and the barriers it presents, and then God would pull those barriers down. And the beauty of this moment is it would be a sign, a sign for you and me that one day, one day, people from all over the world will come together and declare God's glory. We see this in Revelation 7. 
7, 9, it says, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's amazing to me. More than what we can count. More than what we can number. You see, the church finishes as it began. We're going to find it in Revelation 7, just like we're finding it here in Acts 2. It finishes just like it starts. What you and I are building together here in 2022, what we're working hard to build together and steward as God's church is just an outpost of this heavenly kingdom where trans-tribal and translingual people with weird personalities and diverse political views and just varying preferences and convictions, even skin colors will come and worship together. Because heaven is not some homogenized populace where all of our distinctions are washed away. That's not what heaven is at all. And the big story of God, and we've talked about how you can really reduce the big story of God just to four words, paradise lost, paradise regained. And this big story of God, this moment, this day at Pentecost is a huge pivot point. And one thing that we learn very quickly is God loves diversity. It's no barrier to God. It's a beautiful part of his plan. There's going to be a day where you and me, if you are in Christ, where we will stand shoulder to shoulder with people from foreign nations in ancient times, more than what we could count, billions and billions, full of differences, full of variety, yet worshiping the one king of all kings together. This is his beautiful plan. Here's a side question I always wondered growing up whenever I was a younger Christian. What language will we speak in heaven? You ever think about that? You know why you don't? Because you imagine it's English, don't you? That's what we do. We imagine in our own language. That's what the Chinese do. Even though they're wrong, it can't be Chinese, right? Or French or something like that. But that's the way we think. We always think in our own language. And the honest truth is I don't know. I don't think we could really know what language everyone's going to speak. We'll obviously have time to learn different languages, but this is one thing I do believe. I believe we will keep them like we will keep all, some of the aspects of our culture, right? Andy Crouch, who runs a group called Praxis, they build entrepreneurs for cultural renewal. He has a view that I find a lot of resonance with. I'm little less convinced that we lose all of our cultural distinctions when we go to heaven in the end of all ends and celebrate eternity with Jesus. I am much more convinced that there are aspects, artifacts of our culture that are purified and we bring with us. Language being one of them. Stories maybe. So maybe technology. He says it this way, in his book, Culture Making, which is a fantastic book, he says, cultural goods, which could be language, it could be technology, it could be our traditions even. Cultural goods will be transformed and redeemed, yet they will be recognizably what they were in the old creation, or perhaps more accurately, they will be what they always could have been, just like your body. Whenever your body is glorified, it will resemble and it will be recognizable according to what it used to be, but it will show the full potential of what it always should have been. 
And I think that's the way culture will go from one place to the next. And I think this is very cool that you and me, in the end of all ends, when we don't even measure time anymore, time is no longer measured, we will celebrate in our native tongues using pure words, saying pure things to a pure God, glorifying him, all of us at the same time with different languages, and it's this beautiful harmony of diversity. I think that's the Revelation 7 church. The beginning of everything I just said is right here on this day in Pentecost. Very cool. That morning started with 120 believers. It will end with 3,120 believers by dinner time. All of them with different languages and traditions and views and weirdness and convictions. There's a lot of variety. That's the setting. That's the setting of what God is doing in this very incredible moment in history. But there is a caution for us. I don't want to miss it. I think we want to be cautious not to reduce diversity to just skin color. I think that's a trap. I'm seeing it a lot in the church. Usually when a pastor says something about a diverse church or a diverse company or a diverse people, we always go to black, white. We always do that. Skin color, white, black, white, brown. We always think about the way we look on the outside. Now, diversity is not less than skin color, but it is far more than just skin color. The scope is wider than that. Our last census here in Knox County, which was just in 2020, puts us at 78% white, 8% black, 6% Hispanic, and 2% Asian, and with the remaining bit being other or undeclared, right? If we were to have a church that had those same numbers, if legacy was just 78% white, 8% black, 6% Hispanic, and 2% Asian, it wouldn't be a lie and it wouldn't be wrong to say that we are a diverse church, but it wouldn't be going far enough either because the scope of diversity is much more than skin color. I have more in common with some Hispanics than I do with many whites. There are some Asians that do not speak the language that their parents and their grandparents speak that probably have more in common culturally with you. You see, earlier I said that we're more different than we are similar with each other. But even when we're crossing skin color barriers, we're actually more similar than we are different in many ways. You see, diversity is the wide array of cultural values, because we have them, creations, our stories, our clothing, our experiences, our food, our arts, our intellectual achievements, our languages, our fads, our memes, our everything, all coming together. I want you to consider, if you are white, that you will, finally, you will find yourself celebrating in the end of all ends, likely next to other people who are white, just like you, yet from the Civil War era. You'll have more in common with today's Asian college student than you will that person. Think about that just for a moment. Stretch your brain to think about what diversity will look like, even with people of your same skin color. Praxis, one of the things they found out is that we have seen more dramatic culture shifting between 2017 and 2022 than we did between 2017 and 1977. Let me say that a different way. Culture has moved faster in the last five years than the 40 years before that. Let me say it differently, even more so. If you were alive in 2017, and all of you were, you had more in common with those in 1977 than you do those today. Culture moves quick sometimes. It moves fast. 
Again, diversity cannot only mean people of varied color and language. It's not less than that, but it is so much more than that. And this is why I think this is a big, this is why I'm hammering this today. I don't think it's any big high five moment for you and me as a church to build settings like this or companies with a bunch of different skin colors whenever we are disgruntled with our own missional communities because the person of the same skin color with us is too, is too tough to deal with because they're too different. Their personality is too weird. Their convictions are weird. Their political views are weird and we don't want to do community with them. We're just forsaking the diversity that's right around us. When you consider church diversity, don't neglect the diversity that's right in front of you. The difference is right in front of you. Prizing diversity is not less than speaking against racism. It's more. It's also more than that. It's people coming together of different ages, different economic abilities, backgrounds, addictions, Views on whatever you find on your app, all coming together. Here's proof of what I'm saying. Soon we'll get to chapter 6 in Acts. And there's going to be this moment where people start slamming into each other because it's a church. It's the brand new church. It just doesn't take long. There are going to be cultural differences where some people are mishandled by other people. And they all have the same skin color. They all have the same skin color. It's more than just skin color. Although that is where the church finds its deepest mockery from the world. It's the fact that when you walk in, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like a diverse church. But mockery is not, that's not a new thing for the church. In fact, we're going to find it right after this. I mean, they're saying that they were drunk. Let's look at verse 12. Let's read that again. So we're in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, and he's kind of the de facto head guy at this point, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be well known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he's about to talk about that. But what I want you to see right here is that the Galileans were the ones that were speaking in these different tongues. Now, Galileans are notorious for only speaking Hebrew, but not that great, right? They were the uncultured people of the ancient world. I grew up in Texas, and when you wanted to tell an uncultured person joke, it was always an Aggie joke. I don't know if that even makes sense here in East Tennessee. I've never really told an Aggie joke since I moved here. But if you were to say, like, hey, like, like how many Aggies does it take to screw in a light bulb? That was kind of widely understood in Texas that you're, you're kind of demeaning a, an uncultured group. Here it's the Galileans. They are the uncultured punchline. They could barely maneuver Hebrew all that well, which is their native tongue, right? Now, if you and I were in a room and somebody that we thought was cultured walked in, maybe they carried themselves, maybe they were educated, but we thought they were cultured, and they break out on some, some Russian dialect, we would look at them and think, huh, I guess they double majored in school. I guess they took a little Russian while they were in school. I mean, look at it. But if it was somebody from the hills an hour from here that lives in a single wide, raises their own roosters, and has no power to their place, and they broke out in Russian, we would say, something is crazy right now. That person should not know that language. That's what's happening right here, right? These were common people. 
And there's so much weight here that to try to siphon some of the power from this moment, some would mock it and just say they're drunk. Now, not all would do this because 3,000 of them are about to become born again and be added to the church, but some could not resist the old, it must be five o'clock somewhere joke, right? And just to make it feel a little bit easier. But that doesn't even make sense, does it? Because drunk people don't break out and, and outperform the Rosetta Stone, right? Whenever I was in college, I would get drunk occasionally on wine coolers, which means I would have a stomach ache before I would get drunk, right? <laughs> and I, it's not like I would start speaking in Portuguese because I had a bunch of wine coolers. I would speak in like Def Leppard lyrics or something like that, but I couldn't speak in like a very, a, a very deep language or a dialect. Not all miracles, not all miracles earn respect and awe, but they will get mockery. They will get mockery. Jesus himself experienced this. If you go back and read the Gospels, several times will you see him being mocked whenever something powerful is happening. Listen, as long as there's mockery in the world, gospel proclaimers will be mocked. If these 120 experiencing some huge miracle like this are being mocked, you you can count on it happening to you. You can count on it. In the 1920s, being in the church was esteemed. If, if, we, if we went back 100 years, you being here would get you ahead at work. It, it, would, it would lift your standing in the community. That was in the 20s. In the 70s and the 80s, it was tolerated, kind of ignored to be in, in the church. You weren't really thought well of. You weren't really thought poorly of. Now that's different. Now that's different. It's mocked. It's spoken against and wholesale. This is what I've learned over the years of doing ministry. Heavy moments for people, they're uncomfortable, and a lot of them, to get out of the weight of the indictment, will start cracking jokes. They'll bring mockery because it allows them to wiggle out underneath the weight of the indictment that the Holy Spirit is bringing to them in that moment. When you are mocked as an evangelist and as a missionary, when you are mocked, it means you're hitting the mark. It means you're right where you need to be. That's all gas, no brakes. Don't shrink back. You're actually saying some things by the power of the Holy Spirit, very likely, that is hitting the mark. And it's uncomfortable. And that's going to get mockery. You're going to get joked with. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. Prophets were always being mocked. Always. In fact, Peter's about to say something about that right now. He's going to speak of what prophet, the prophet Joel would say in verse 16. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel, 500 years earlier, would say that you and I would become prophets. 
and everyone in this setting right here, that we would become prophets. Not, not the spiritual gift of prophecy that Paul would talk about and not the prophet capital P that we would see roaming around the wilderness in the Old Testament. What we're going to see is the more broader sense, the more general usage of the word, which is just to proclaim the word of God, right? That you and I would be gospel proclaimers, that we would extend and declare the word of God. And in that, we have a lot in common with Old Testament prophets because we have this intimate relationship with God as they did, and we extend the word of God as they did, right? And they had dreams and visions, as Joel would say, but we have, the, we have the better Jesus. We have Jesus. This is why the author of Hebrews would say that in the old days, God would speak to us through various means, but in these days, it would be through Jesus. That's why, that's why he has this in there. That's why Joel would say that, but it would be different for you and me. And to show what all of this would look like as a prophet, what it looks like to be a prophet in the New Testament, in the general sense of the word, Peter preaches. Probably one of the very first gospel-centered sermons in the world. And he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that, both, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being, therefore, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Okay, just the main idea of what Peter is saying right here, if you were to drill it down to one sentence. Jesus did not die is a whimpering, pathetic victim, but as the centerpiece, the competent centerpiece of God's sovereign plan to rescue a doomed cosmos. When you imagine the atonement, and when I say the atonement, I mean the reality and the scene of a cross with blood on it and a tomb with no king in it. 
whenever you think about the atonement, which just means that we are brought to bear, to be with God, to be at one with God, when we are cleansed, when we have righteousness, when, when our sin has been carried away, this thing called the atonement, when you imagine it, imagine that God took our sins and he wore a cross, but he didn't do so because we beat him as a superior bully of mankind. Don't imagine that. It's true, we murdered him. And it's also true, he foreknew and purposed it. Both those are true. Peter says as much. He met us in our need, and we took his life. Yeah, we're guilty. But the gospel is he's very good to the guilty. That's the gospel good news for you and me. The gospel truth for us is he's not our victim, defenseless underneath our pounding and and the worst we could throw. He is our champion. We were rescued by a hero. You see, I don't want us to miss what Peter is doing right here with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a little bit of a different Peter, too, by the way, from what we see in the Gospels. He's so full of confidence and clarity here, isn't he? He's so composed. He's got a lot of courage on him. It's different than the Peter that I was used to reading about in the Gospels. And at the same time, he's not magical. He's just an ordinary guy, just like you, just like me. He has the Holy Spirit. He's an ordinary guy. He's just prophesying as Joel said would happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is important to me. I think it's important to us because when we bring our obedience to bear on mission to a city like Knoxville, when we bring our obedience to bear, the Holy Spirit will take our meager words, our broken words, and permeate these bulletproof hearts, especially the ones that mock all around us. Let's look at how it finishes in verse 37. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were, it says, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what we're seeing is a gospel declaration to match the gospel demonstration we've been seeing. And what is it doing? It's cutting many to the heart. Isn't that interesting phrase, cut to the heart? That's what the gospel does. The gospel, when it addresses diverse people from all over the world, cuts hearts and builds a diverse church that's unified around one Jesus, even in the face of mockery. And God will get it done. God will get it done. You see, I think we feel inadequate in the face of diversity and mockery. It frightens us. We feel inadequate. When we think about the idea of diversity, which I laid out, and the idea of mockery, which we plainly see, there's always this phrase in the back of our head that says, I am not enough. I can't get it done. I am not enough to be a missionary evangelist to that group, to that person, to these people, to this city. I'm not enough to to deal with the arguments and the laughter from all the college professors all lined up ready to go. I'm not enough. I don't know enough. I am not enough. 
whoever the Samaritans and those to the ends of the earth are around you, it's going to be easy for them to intimidate you and buy your silence, especially when we're being called, as Joel says, to tell the mighty works of God as a prophet. You see, diversity does frighten us because we know we're going to find discomfort. We like the idea of diversity, don't we? And we should. I, I think a big part of it is implanted in us because of the gospel, who because remember, barriers are crossed. It, it takes energy to cross a barrier, whether it's language or culture, to touch and connect somebody else. But is that not the Christ path where he comes and crosses the barrier into mankind to come close to us? I think one of the reasons we like diversity so much is because we're shown diversity in the gospel where God comes close to us. But it frightens us. Again, we like the idea, but not the price tag. It's why, it's why we want our churches to be diverse, and we want our companies to be diverse, yet all our friends look just like us, don't they? Fascinating. All our friends look just like us. Luke, I would love for our church to be more diverse. I would love for my company to be more diverse. I would love for our city to be more diverse. And yet all our friends look just like us. Diversity requires we start with ourselves and say, am I a witness to those who don't look like me, who don't vote like me, who don't have histories like me, who don't spend money like me, who don't dress like me? Paul, he says, I, I become all things. I become like all people. I become like all cultures so that I might save a few. I think... The church, and I won't even say the modern church, I'll just say the historical church, wants connection to be easy. Wants connection to be easy. We don't want barriers. We come into places like this, and we, we need it to be easy. But let me just say, community isn't something we really find. It's something we build. Community is not something we trip on. It's something that we have to invest into. And it does mean crossing barriers. It means doing the work. There is a price tag to it. Can we build community with people that are not like us? That's the question. Now I'll tell you right now, no, you're not enough. The voice in the back of your head is right. You're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not cool enough. You don't know the right words. You don't have enough courage for it, but you do have the Holy Spirit. And it is his steam that builds the church Remember last week and the week before, we looked at how we bring our obedience to the table, but he brings his power to the table, right? When I was in campus ministry, I was in campus ministry for 12 years, longer than I've been a lead pastor now that I think about it. But when I was in campus ministry, people, and it was always the baby boomers that would say this, it would be the people from the next generation up for me because I'm Gen X. They'd always come and they were so impressed. They were impressed that I would be able to connect and preach the gospel to people with tattoos, <laughs> Just to say it out loud, it's funny now that I think of it. Luke, how do you do it? I mean, I was watching you over there on the campus and you were talking to that person about Jesus and they were listening and they had tattoos. <laughs> tattoos. Remember when tattoos were, were edgy? They're not edgy anymore, are they? Half of you have tattoos. But what is it that says to you, stay away from me, we have nothing in common? Where is diversity most profound in your eyes? What warns you away Tells you you have no chance at connection. Tells you that the barrier is too high. The diversity is too high for you to connect. What is it for you? What is it that makes you feel inadequate? 
That is where we are trusting our competence over the power of the Holy Spirit, over the work that the the Holy Spirit is glad to do through us. Remember, we bring our obedience to the table and God brings his power. Peter is a normal guy here. He's a normal guy. So yeah, diversity frightens us a little bit. Mockery does too though, right? Because it smells like rejection. And it is rejection. I mean, the, the thing about cutting people to the heart is, and I know you know this, not everybody wants to be cut to the heart, and they'll let you know. They'll let you know. And I've got no strategies to help you escape rejection. Just an invitation to embrace it. It is a gift of God. It's a gift. Rejection is a gift of sorts. Which is why you'll find Jesus saying things like, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He'll say things like, woe to those when everyone speaks well of you. Rejection, whenever you extend and declare the gospel of God to others and you tell of the mighty works and you do what Joel is talking about, will put you in this this small space, this unique space that you share with the saints of God that we're free to let go of this world that were free and just satisfied so much in who God is that they didn't need the approval of this world. They don't want the acceptance of this world. Man, you enjoy this freedom from the world's shifty adoration where they'll love you on Monday and cancel you on Tuesday. Don't let rejection stop you from declaring the gospel because God is building a diverse kingdom around you. And even people that are mocking today will be worshiping tomorrow. I was one of them. People that mock today with their stinging jokes and their crude words will one day be shoulder to shoulder with you and me in the Revelation 7 church proclaiming the word of God, declaring God's glory with pure words. That'll happen. God will get it done. But sometimes I find my silence deafening because I have these words of life in my lungs, as Joel said, to tell. But the fear of not being enough kind of removes my confidence. So I have to repent, just like you. In times like this, I have to say, God, I repent because I've spoken very loudly with my silence. And I've said with my silence that your approval and your love are not enough. I need what the world has. I'm so little satisfied in who you are that I demand others adore me in this world of mist and vapor. Where God, I repent that I refuse to love those very different from me. I just want things to be easy. I want to find community. I don't want to build community. I want to find connection shrink-wrapped and ready to go. I don't want to build. I don't want it to be hard. I don't want diversity around me. When I really get down to it, my soul says I hate it because I want things to be easy. I don't want to apply energy to relationships around me with the city, even with the church. So what I really prefer is heaven on earth to look like me, just like me. And I need to repent. And I need the Holy Spirit to change me. I have to say, just like many of you, Lord, there are people around me that are hard to deal with. And I need you to give me the power to embrace and invite and enjoy the diversity of the church that you are building around me, that you started in Pentecost, and that you will drive to the very end. 
And listen, some of you in here, you might be cut to the heart, just like what Peter's audience was, or if you're watching at home, you might be cut to the heart and say, what shall we do? Okay, what do we do? And I'll just say the very same thing Peter did. He starts with, this Jesus has done. That's how he starts. I love that. This is what Jesus did. He came to suffer by us, for us. He gave us his very blood as he died a criminal's death. And it's all part of his plan to regain paradise. This paradise that was always foreknown. This plan that was always structured and ordained and destined. He always knew and planned it. He knew it would cost him dearly and make us spiritually wealthy. But it will cost you your crowns and your addictions and your own will. It will cost you your everything. But here's the cool thing about the moment. If you are cut to the heart, it's the same Holy Spirit that came in like a rushing wind. That showed itself like, showed himself like fire. That showed a miracle that was cutting people to the heart back then. You could be joining a church that started with this original 120, then quickly 3,120. It's the same Holy Spirit that lifts Jesus from a cold slab. It's the same Jesus that's putting his church together, stitching it together, gifting his church, empowering his church. It's the same Holy Spirit. 